Hey everyone, welcome to Conversation Peace with Patrick Armstrong. I am the titular Patrick, and this is the show where my guests and I discuss what piece of the conversation we aren't talking about, but should be. Special shout out to all my returning listeners, and a high five and hello to everyone joining us for the very first time. Thank you so much. The month of May is Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, or APAM, and is meant to celebrate and reflect on the history and peoples that make up our beautiful diaspora. As part of that reflection, this month I'll be sharing nine conversations with friends and folks I greatly admire in the community as we discuss those missing pieces of the Asian American conversation, what we know, what we might not know, and what we can do about it. These are the APAM Conversations. My guest today is a queer, Jewish, anti-bias and anti-racist educator, facilitator, and author who also happens to be a fellow Korean adoptee. I am honored to welcome Liz Kleinrock to the show. Hey, Liz. Hey, and friend. How come you didn't mention that one too? <laughs> and friend, and very good you. friend on the show and off the show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I didn't say that. This, <laughs> I don't know why I didn't say that. I don't think I said that with anybody, and I think I'm friends with everyone that I'm talking to on this series. So, um, thank, I, good. Thank you for naming that. I should be saying that in my introductions with people. Um, Liz, how You're are you welcome. doing? I'm good. How are you? No complaints. <laughs> Just giving you a hard time. I'm doing, <laughs> I'm doing better now that I'm being held accountable for not calling on my friendships uh, when I speak with people on my podcast, <laughs> which is, I think, very important, actually. So thank you for calling me on that. I get it, though. I mean, I feel like sometimes we we worry that people will just be like, well, all you're doing is like inviting your friends. So it's just like nepotism. Like it's a different type of nepotism. Sure. But I mean, I always tell people that in like our line of work, like when you're focused on community and identity and justice, there's like no one that I've worked with who I don't consider a friend. Like there's no one mm. who I am in partnership or I've collaborated with where our communication is just solely work. Like we check in with each other about you know, our lives and how we're feeling and our friendships and our families. Like that's a part of, I think I wish people would do more of. <laughs> that's a really good point. I think that is something I've never kind of thought about before. And I, you're right. Like the people, especially because I've only been doing this for, you know, the last three years or so, all of the people I feel like that I do work with, I am friends with now or have at least a little bit deeper relationship than that surface level work relationship. So that's a good thing. Maybe we should talk about that. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about that. <laughs> we can talk about that. All right. Before we talk about that, um, I know I gave you a little bit of an intro, but for people who may not know you, do you mind sharing a little bit more about yourself? Sure. So Patrick covered my like main social identities. Um, I've been in education for now like 13 years. I've taught every single grade of elementary school. I've also taught middle school. I've been a librarian. Um, but my focus is really on anti-bias and anti-racism education, facilitation, speaking, and writing. Um, I wrote a book on anti-bias and anti-racism in schools that came out in May 2021. I have a handful of upcoming children's books on different topics, all that relate to different parts of my identity. Also, first one comes out this September. It's called Come and Join Us, which I'm very excited about. Um what else? I like I like fly fishing. I like horror movies. I have two pet bunnies, a cat. Feel like those are those are like the the main things. I live in DC. That's a good one. <laughs> I lived in California for about ten years. 
I'm just listing random things now. Please tell me to stop at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for sharing that. And we'll definitely link in the show notes to all of the wonderful things that you're working on. Um, Let's dive into this conversation. And we were going to talk about something else, but I think I like what you brought up because I feel like I'm not talking about it. So I wonder if other people are talking about it. And that's the relationships we build together when we step into work that I guess... I don't know. Your work specifically is anti-bias, anti-racist education. I don't know what my work is. Storytelling, um, specifically with like a lens of the Asian American adoptee experience. But sometimes I, I think this is something that's very interesting. Like we do this work with other people and we develop these relationships, but I don't know. Sometimes we maybe not label them as friendships or friends, or maybe we don't talk about that and name that explicitly. You kind of elaborated on it uh, in the introduction. Can you go more into that concept specifically? Yeah. I mean, I guess when I think about my coworkers, like if I had to unpack the idea of coworker, I think like my bias puts me in like an office building, a nine to five situation where there are cubicles and conference rooms and meetings and things like that. Um, clearly, like I think in most jobs you end up forming relationships with people. I mean, if it's just Mm. uh, your work friend, so like they're the person you eat lunch with at work, you go to happy hour with that person, but maybe, you know, on the weekend, they're not the person that you're hitting up. Um, I feel really lucky because when I taught for at one particular school in LA for almost eight years, um, I came away with a really strong group of friends. Um, my, Mm. I met my best friend, at work. Like I was her maid of honor. Like she and her partner were also very instrumental in my wedding also. Um, and that stemmed from work, but I think because now this year, since I'm not in the classroom, I think a lot about the relationships that I have with people. Um, if it's, if it's school clients, and I think sometimes maybe like the client friendship line can be a little complicated. Um, you know, when there is something transactional, when money is involved, that can sometimes complicate Mm. like friendships and relationships. It shouldn't have to, but it just, it does. Um, but when I think about people that I have collaborated with, um, particularly like at the beginning of the pandemic, when everything shut down, um, a group of other educators who all focus on, you know, anti-bias and anti-racism came together and formed this collective called Liberate and Chill. And I was friends with probably like 70% of the people, Grant, there were like 12, 13 of us, like most of the people I knew, but then the others who I got to know through that work, even though we were coming together for the purpose of educating people, for being able to sustain our incomes, it was technically work. Um, but we got out of it something so much bigger. And I think a an important piece of that was being able to model for people like what being in community and being in relationship with others looks like and what that feels like. That yes, like we have these shared values, we have these common goals, we do work together and there's an additional layer to that as well. Um, It would feel weird, let's say for like you and I, because we have worked together on different projects before. We're presenting at a conference together this summer. Right. for us to just begin the conversation with, all right, let's go straight to the agenda. Of course, I'm going to ask you like, you know, how's your partner? How's like your new house? You know, how are all the different like amazing projects that you're working on going? Um, And if something comes up that's personal, we can table the work conversation because the work isn't going anywhere. 
our relationship needs to be cultivated. It needs to be supported. You do have to put, you know, a good amount of effort and energy into it. And I'm proud to say that there aren't people that I view as like just work people unless I've done like a one-off consultation for you or something like that. Um, but I think it's beautiful to be able to get to know folks like on a, on a deeper level than just like, what is the product that you are selling or supporting and how am I receiving that? I don't know. What's it been like for you? Cause you would talk to people all the time. Yeah. I mean, I think that for me, it's, I don't know, because I think it's ra- a lot of my work is wrapped up in, we have to have a conversation first, like, because the, the work is the, co- the conversation itself. And so there's a little bit of mm, not forcedness to it, but a little bit of inevitability for us to develop a relationship because we have to have that conversation. And generally, we're talking a little bit more deeply about someone's personal story. And I'm mm-hmm. also relaying stuff from my personal uh, journey and my history. And so it, it, it develops a little bit more slowly, I guess, because while I let people in really quickly, I think to really like trust and feel like that relationship is fully forming, it takes a lot longer for me. And I wanted to ask you, you know, you talked about like the group coming together, beginning the pandemic, liberate and chill. Like how does, can you talk about or even describe when a relationship with someone you are just meeting who maybe operates in the same space or community as you goes from being just like a working or collaboration type of thing to like becoming more of a deeper relationship akin to a friendship? Yeah. I mean, I think that's when I start texting you about the show that we both mentioned that we're both watching or something like that. Sure. If I'm, if I'm in your town for a conference or for work, am I going to hit you up to like grab a bite, like get a coffee with me? Um, and also looking at the amount of effort that the other person is putting in too, because I've done a lot of podcasts. I just mentioned to you earlier that I've done a few even today, um, which were both with you know lovely people. And I've also done podcasts in the past where it felt uncomfortably transactional. Like mm. they yeah. have, I like less people, like I have an assistant who helps me with things. If you have an assistant, that's amazing. But let's say that like I'm only communicating with your assistant up until the recording. And then when we record, we go on, I've sent you a bio. I've sent you my headshots. You ask these questions at the end. You say, okay, thanks so much. Bye. And then that's the end. Then like your screen goes blank. You feel (laughs) like, wow, like that was a really a nice conversation, but I'm probably not even going to remember your name in a couple of weeks. Like Mm. it felt so transactional that we are, we sat here, I bared my soul. You asked me really personal questions and then, and that's over and that's it. Um, And obviously I understand that people do podcasting for a living, that people are going to put different amounts of effort and energy into the relationships that they cultivate. Um, And for me, I I want to know that there is a deeper level of care beyond what do I bring to your platform or like your own marketability, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I really appreciate you naming that because it's something that I guess it's crossed my mind. And I feel like on the John Chi show, we've talked about that a little bit. It's like, you know, our follow up with guests that we've previously talked to. And I feel like for the most part, we do have somewhat of a relationship with almost everyone, but not everyone. And I do think it does fall on our shoulders a little bit to carry that relationship forward. Because like you said, you know, a guest comes on and then they're bearing their soul to you. There was somebody who uh, applied 
And we did not get to that person for like a really long time. And they wrote us an email and they were upset because they felt like they had just shared really vulnerably their story in the form. And then they were hoping for a response much more quickly than we were able to give. And we, but we didn't set the expectation of like what the timeline was. So on us. And I remember that distinctly because like, I don't want to make people feel like that. You know what I mean? Like, especially when they come on with and to the show in order to share something that they probably never shared with someone before. We did end up having that person on the show. And I think we actually talked about it in their episode. And I felt it felt cathartic just because we were able to bridge that, you know, that uh, miscommunication, but also hold ourselves accountable in a real way. And like you said before, with the community model, maybe what that looks like in terms of how do you cultivate a relationship with someone. Um, from the standpoint of Asian America and working together collaboratively, reaching out from our own communities and and working together in other communities that make up the diverse nature of our diaspora, how do you see what part or what do you think that we need to do as Asian Pacific Islander, Native Hawaiian, Daisy American to to be able to work together to develop deeper relationships, I guess. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, the self-educating piece is really, really important um, for one. Like when I recognize that I know very little, for example, about the South Asian immigration experience or the Southeast Asian immigration experience, or maybe the things that I have learned have only been through the lens of like a, a United States Western experience, like, especially when thinking about our Southeast Asian folks who many of whom like ended up in the United States, not because they wanted to, but because of a political situation actually created by the U S and other Western nations. Like there is a lot of complexity there. So while, yeah, like it's, it's very much embracing the yes. And it's not so much this either, or, um, that our community, is unified under this term Asian American, which is still like relatively new, like was actually created only in like what 60s, 70s in California. Um, But for, I think a lot of Asian folks, there is a lot more affinity towards your specific ethnic subgroup rather than Asian American, like as, as a term overall, like as a facilitator, I've run into a handful of Asian folks who have expressed a lot of discomfort um, and rejection outright of the term Asian or Asian American, even the term like people of color. They want to be seen as their ethnicity because that is how they identify, that is their culture. And I also completely understand that too. It's complex. The experience of a Korean adoptee who grew up on the East Coast, like me in a Jewish family, is going to be extremely different than, you know, a friend of mine who is. Vietnamese American grew up in Texas and is the child of refugees. Um, It's going to be even different for you being Korean adopted and growing up in Indiana. It's going to be different for everybody. Um, So while we often say to the community outside of, you know, Asian folks and Pacific Islander folks that we are not monolithic, you know, we are diverse. We want to be seen this way. Are we actually like holding up the mirror to ourselves too? Like, how are we also looking at our community? What are right. the nuances and language that we're trying to lean into and understanding that we all have different experiences? You talked about self-education being super important and going 
not the extra mile, but even doing the the bare minimum of like reaching out and learning about other communities within our larger diaspora. How do you, or what would you recommend for people who feel like I didn't learn this in school? I don't know what the in is. Obviously, there's like a dear Asian Americans. There are there are many many ways for people to to enter into this space to learn. Do you have advice for folks who just feel like, for whatever reason, they're either they have a fear or there's some sort of self limiting thing that's keeping them from wanting to take that first step? I'm thinking now as an example, like a transracial adoptee who might be super because of their specific lived experience or because of a certain lived experience might feel super resistant or hesitant to explore not even their own ethnic culture, but any other cultures. Is there a piece of advice that you can even give to someone in that situation to take that first step? Because I, I don't know, this is fresh in mind just because I feel like I've been seeing a lot of this on like TikTok, for example of adoptees voicing a discomfort uh, to not everyone, but just to start that exploration and asking for kind of that same advice. My mind always goes to the underlying why. Like, why is it intimidating? Mm -hmm. Why is there not interest in that? Like, what is the perception of the barriers that exist that prevent you from doing this type of self-work? Sure. I think for folks who want to be able to own the term like Asian American or talk about representing or advocating for Asian Americans, it's not a pick and choose situation. Like if you want to like go hard for like East Asians, at least say that's what you're doing. Don't say that you support like people across the Asian diaspora when you're really only focused on one region or like one ethnic Mm. subgroup. Um, I think there's just power in being able to name what you're doing. Like when I talk about inclusivity and like the Asian American community, I reminds me that I have to hold myself accountable and be really mindful of making sure that I'm also amplifying and elevating South Asian, Southeast Asian, Western, Central Asian people. Um, because we know that the bias immediately goes towards China, Japan, Korea. Like we have to be aware of that. And we certainly see that in different types of Asian American organizations too. When we look at leadership, who's on the board Mm. of certain orgs and and stuff like that. Um, So if you are saying that I am here to support, for example, Korean adoptees, there's nothing wrong with that. Just say it. Don't say that you are all about like the entire adoptee community when like that's actually not the focus of what you're doing. I appreciate you sharing that because I do think it's, you know, you have to, it's important to name it and be aware of the why, you know, I think we too often right now skim the surface of a lot of these things. And it's easy for us, especially if we find ourselves in a lived experience that has maybe on maybe intentionally put the blinders on, but to us, but we are unaware that the blinders exist currently. And we're trying to like find our way through the tunnel to be able to start seeing and to kind of, tie this all together into the topic that we came into this conversation discussing. Um, I think that self-awareness goes a long way towards developing the empathy necessary to build relationships um, with the people that you work with, with the people that you find yourself in community with, if that's what you want to do, which hopefully you want to do because by working together, we're able to, you know, do great things and, and move the needle forward in terms of change. Now to take that question and talk about it in terms of folks outside of our community, 
how do they support us in building relationships with the Asian American or Asian diaspora itself? Like what do, I I assume it starts again with self-education on their part, but are there other ways to go about facilitating and, and cultivating those relationships with our community that maybe we're not talking about right now? Mm. I mean, I think for folks who are not Asian, yes, like you just said, like starting with that self-education piece and thinking about, I don't know, common microaggressions or the ways that people's biases, again, like mostly toward like for in support of East Asians, like often shows up. And I do think that that can create a lot of resentment with other um, parts of like the Asian diaspora. I'm sure that mm. if I were South Asian or Southeast Asian or Western Asian, that I would feel a ton of resentment that every time you see a post about Asian American history or like a community that's for Asian Americans and you just see East Asian features, like that would upset me too. I would be outraged about that. Um, so thinking about the ways in which you can enter the conversation with that like very open perspective, I think that is super helpful. Um, I know that you and I have also talked about the pitfalls of the scarcity mindset too, that because mm-hmm. also the Asian American diaspora is so large, we're talking about people from you know almost 50 different nations, like all these different languages and cultures and traditions and beliefs, um, that if we're all put in a position to compete for this limited, or at least the perception of a limited amount of space or attention or platform, then yeah, that's like a recipe for disaster that everybody thinks that if this is our one chance, it has to either be perfect. Every single person of every intersection of every identity needs to be represented. And if this is the only thing that we get, it has to be flawless. And that is, you know, Mm. it's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah. I think recipe for disaster is an excellent way to describe it because it, it obscures the actual goal and it forces, it, it usually ends up perpetuating harm towards somebody. And while some people might, move forward. There's other people who either staying in the same spot or have been kicked back down a few notches because of, you know, what we've done to scramble to get ahead uh, and whatever the situation might be. Um, who right now is inspiring you in terms of like relationship building? Who are, who, who, who do you see right now that is doing the coalition work in terms of within the Asian American diaspora and without like, and, and not without, but with, uh, with other communities as well, like the cross-racial solidarity, I guess. Um, Someone who I've been very privileged to learn from, to work with, um, going back to the original, I hope I can call her my friend because I really like her a lot, Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, is Ellen O. Um, She is a Korean-American middle grade and young adult author. She lives very close to me. Um, And she is also the founder of We Need Diverse Books. And so she has been out on the front lines for quite some time talking about the importance of like affirming representation in kids lit. And she's also been such a vocal supporter um, against book bans and the things that we're currently Mm. seeing in so many states in in this country. Um, She is fearless. Um, she is a connector. She is so generous of spirit. Um, she lends her expertise and her advice like whenever possible. And I, I feel so lucky to be in community with her. Like she works with everybody. I love it. Amazing. Ellen O. I appreciate you sharing that. And I will definitely link, we need diverse books here in the show notes as well. Liz, I really appreciate you again, sitting down with me for folks 
folks who aren't who don't know, I'm going to give a little behind the scenes. We already recorded one episode, and we were like, you know what? Let's record a second one. <laughs> um, so that's what this conversation is, and I just want to mention that because I really appreciate you giving me your time and taking time out of your schedule to sit down and do something like this with me. It really means a lot. Two more questions before we wrap it up here. A lot of people have a lot of different thoughts and feelings about Heritage Month specifically. And I've written a little bit about this topic myself. And so I was wondering, do you personally celebrate APAM? And if so, or if not, do you feel comfortable sharing why or why not? Heck yeah. And heck yeah, I celebrate APAM. 100%. It's like your birthday, you know? Like, (laughs) yeah, I know that... At least to me, I know that like I am important, at least in my own life, 365 (laughs) days a year. And, you know, like it's on your birthday, you get a little extra, little extra attention. Um, People try to keep it like pretty positive. And I kind of view the same thing for heritage months. Like should black history, women's history, Asian American history, queer history, yeah, be included all year long? Absolutely. Yes, 100%. And because there are you know, so many challenges and complications when thinking about our history, you can't fit everything into one month. Um, I personally think that heritage months should be used to celebrate joy, to look at the beauty and the power of our, you know, of our community, that this is not the time to be talking about, you know, the murders in Atlanta from a few years ago. Mm. This is not the time to be talking about the Chinese Exclusion Act and the ways that Asians and Asian Americans have faced discrimination and racism. Like we have 11 other months out of the year where we can talk about all of those things. Um, I want this to be as joyful as possible. So just about like what we focus on. But yeah, I think I think heritage months are important too, because I know that there are also a lot of people who don't put any thought into our community. And at Mm. least if they're doing it now, like it is not the end all be all, but it is a place to start. And I'll take that. That's okay. Everybody has to start somewhere. Absolutely. I absolutely love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think even for me, the last few months or the last few months, last few years of celebrating, I think I have been kind of caught up in, less so much the joy and more so the unpacking all of the terrible things that are happening. And I hadn't really thought about it that way. So I really appreciate you sharing that. I, I really, really like that. Um, you specifically get to celebrate May double time. You get a double I special do. because it's also yes. Jewish American Heritage Month. Can you talk a little bit about what it means to be able to celebrate two things and how you hold space for both um, as you go and navigate that month? I literally just made a slide deck about this for my Patreon community, like specifically about the intersection of Jewish American history and APAM. (laughs) So I'm very, very excited about this. Um, I feel like a lot of folks would probably expect me to kind of separate those two, to compartmentalize. Like there's like the Asian celebration, there's the Jewish celebration. I reject that. I think they're very... Mm. It's very, very easy to celebrate both at the same time because it's not like I am half Asian and half Jewish. I am fully and wholly Asian and I am fully and wholly Jewish. I don't want to have to be put in a position to pick and choose. Um, What I do think is that we can focus on certain things that both communities share in common. If not, I mean, like history is part of it. It's not just history. Um, 
in this right. deck that I created, it's reminding folks of the importance of intersectionality. Like you can be more than one thing at the same time. That while Judaism is a religion and an ethnicity, you can also be Asian, Desi, Pacific Islander, and also Jewish fully. Um, two is going back to that like scarcity mindset and the abundance piece that, yeah, you can always make space to celebrate more than one person or group at the same time. There's enough celebration to go around. Um, the third is the similarities piece that both the Jewish and Apita communities have shared experiences on our histories and treatment. Um, even looking at like the model minority myth, which a lot of aspects do extend to the Jewish community in the U.S. as well. Mm. And then last but not least, like shared goals and objectives that I know that justice is a core value in Judaism. And from the Asian folks I am in community with, I know that justice very much is a part of the Asian American experience as well. Um, that there are so many similarities and commonalities between folks in both communities trying to center like the liberation and striving for a more equitable world for, for everybody. Like that is something that we share. Um, in the past when people would tell me, you know, like as an, as an Asian Jewish person, like, you know, you essentially like telling me that I don't belong. And I, I really felt that way for such a long time that I had to prove like my Asian, my Jewishness, um, mm. because I, I was Asian because I wasn't the, the image of what people's like biases make them imagine in their head when they picture somebody who's Jewish. I know my history. I know that there have been Jewish communities in all regions of Asia for thousands of years in China in India. I know that Shanghai and the Philippines were safe havens for Jewish refugees who escaped Europe during the Holocaust. There are so many examples of allyship that have existed. Um, I know this history. So when people say that to me, I can then say, actually, it seems like you're actually the one who doesn't know your history. I know where I actually come from. I know mm. my roots. Just because you're ignorant doesn't give you the ability to try to dictate like what is or isn't my truth and my journey here. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And can't wait for you to be able to share that with your community. Um, Folks, if you're not already supporting Liz on her Patreon, go there because you will learn so much more and you'll be supporting someone who's doing this amazing work. Liz, you're absolutely amazing person and just wanting to affirm to you how much I feel like I've learned from you and how much I know other folks have learned from you as well. Every time you impart a piece of wisdom or share something uh, on social media or wherever else that you or I follow you along at, the response is overwhelming just to see the amount of people whose lives you affect in a positive way, just with the work that you do is absolutely amazing. It's a privilege for me to be able to just sit and see and be a part of from an audience perspective. So thank you for all of that outside of your Patreon. How else do we support you? Thanks, Patrick. That's really nice. <laughs> oh, you make me cry. Um, <laughs> uh, you can find me on Instagram. Um, my handle's at Teach and Transform. And I have a website also, teachandtransform.org. So feel free to hit me up. Yeah, thank you so much. You are so very welcome. And you have a book coming out in October, correct? Come and join us. Se September. Oh, September 5th. September. September 5th. Come and join us coming out. Is that available for pre-order yet? Heck yeah. Please pre-order it. Yes. <laughs> Please go and pre-order it. Folks, you know how to support Liz. Again, just going to 
thank you one more time for taking a little bit of your of your month. I about said Friday, a little bit of your Monday <laughs> to sit down and have the second conversation with me. It means so much for you to be a part of this series. And I'm super excited about everything that you have coming up as well. Um, again, this has been the APAM Conversations. If you want to support Liz, you can find all of the amazing things that we talked about here in the show notes. If you want to support our show, you can follow us along at Conversation Podpiece on Instagram. And if you feel so inclined to leave a rating or review on whatever podcast player you're currently listening to this on, we would greatly appreciate it. And if you're interested in supporting the show in the future, feel free to hop in my DMs or visit my website, patrickintheworld.me. Until next time, I'm Patrick Armstrong, and this has been Conversation Piece. Thanks, Liz. Thank you.